Good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. Inshallah, happy Sabbath. The study that I have this morning is a subject that's uh, been of interest uh, for me for some time. Um, I hope that you enjoy it too and that if you're blessed, you just praise the Lord for it. The subject is on the city of refuge and its symbolism um, and parallels that we find in Christ being our refuge. There's a lot more that can be said about this, but we only have a limited amount of time. This actually, what I was doing was could have been like three messages, but I try to just condense it and eliminate it and get it to one. But I hope it's enough that will pique your interest that you'll want to delve in and to study a little bit deeper on your own. We might ask, why cities of refuge were needed? What purpose did they serve? What were meant What were these uh, cities meant to teach us, and do they symbolize Christ and his ministry? And I know that we know about the the sanctuary. We've studied it, and it's the basic of our message, and we know that in the sanctuary service, the plan of salvation is laid out. And through the study of the cities of refuge, I think you're going to be able to see the plan of salvation laid out in there, too, of Christ being our refuge Um, One of the things that was trying to teach us is the sacredness of human life. Um, The sacredness of human life was one of the great principles of the Christian religion, which is generally not recognized by your pagan and your atheistic concepts. Very early, God sought to impress upon his people that to put an end to man's life under any circumstances was a serious matter. The seriousness of it rests in the fact that man was made in the image of the divine likeness, and thus he had a kinship with God. After the flood, God emphatically declared in Genesis 9-6 that whosoever whosoever sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. From the image of God he made man. Let's turn over to Exodus 21 and look at verses 13 and 14. So Exodus 21, 13 and 14. We see here that it tells us that, but if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him to his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him with guile, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And when it tells in 13 that God delivered him, God didn't allow it to happen, but God, it was an unexpected thing that God allowed to happen. So we see here that God promised a place for someone who killed somebody unintentionally to go, and that would be the city of refuge. But it's also telling us that if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor, so he's lying in wait, with treachery or guile, wanting to kill that person, there was no refuge for that person. He was to be put to death. God sought to regulate the ancient custom of private vengeance. And private private vengeance is where the punishment of the murdered person devolved upon the nearest relative And that person could go and could kill the other person for killing his relative. And they were considered, they were called um, and referred to as the avenger of blood. 
Israel stood alone among the nations in the value set upon human life, and God sought to teach them still more concerning the justice as well as the mercy of God. We all know that God only leads man as rapidly as he's able to comprehend divine truth. And this principle is characteristic of the the, um, Hebrew legislation given by God through Moses. It adapted itself to the condition of men. And God always wanted his people to tend toward perfection of character, to be a holy people to him. But the first, these people were not capable of realizing this. Thus, God permitted slavery, polygamy, free divorce. They were for a time tolerated, and laws were enacted to regulate these practices, but these practices were neither ordained nor approved by God. But this feeling was so deeply rooted in the Hebrew mind that the nearest of kin was the guardian of his brother's life, and for this reason he was bound to avenge his death. Instead of crossing this feeling and seeking to just uproot this and get rid of it, they didn't. So God had to place this emotion under a temporary beneficial check in which he would um, prevent it from inflicting great injustice where no crime had been committed. Thus, God made provisions to ensure the safety of those who should take life unintentionally, and they were, of course, the cities of refuge. Refuge comes from the Greek word kalat, Q-A-L-A-T, which means to draw, to take in, or to receive, hence the idea of asylum or refuge. Now, the cities of refuge were all in a level plain, or they were in valleys, and they were in well-known areas. They were convenient distances, one from another, and they were to be a benefit for all the tribes. There were three cities that were west of Jordan, there were three, and those were Kadesh, Shechem, and Hebron. Then there were three cities east of Jordan, that was Bezir, Ramah, and Golan. One was in the northwest, the northeast, one central, the other central, a southwest, and a southeast. And these cities were all approximately a half a day's journey. Um, I tried to research how long a half a day's journey would be, and they said they really didn't keep good calculations about that, but roughly what they came up with, it was a distance of like 15 to 20, or 10 to 15 miles apart. So the person would have, you know, 10 or 15 miles to travel to go from one city uh, to the next city. And depending on, you know, probably the age, the shape of the person, I think back then the people were in good shape back then because they did a lot of walking. So it may have taken them an hour and a half or two hours to flee to that city. When we think about it, when a man has killed somebody and he's anxiously fleeing, he was trying to escape for his life, there must, he must have every advantage that he could possibly have. There must be no mountains to climb. The roads were kept in good repair. There were no ruts, no holes. Um, there were no stones, nor branches. All these roads were maintained and kept clean. They were open and they were easily accessible. And then all along the way, there were signposts, especially across roads, they had these signs. And on these signs were erected with plain, bold letters, it read the word refuge, so that the fleeing one might not be delayed for a moment. The responsibility rested upon the Levites to maintain these roads and maintain these signs. They had to make sure they were easy to see, that 
signs were well secured and they were pointing in the right direction so that the fleeing sinner might not be misled and go in another direction that didn't take him to a city of refuge. Now, the account of the city of refuge is found in three different places. It's in Deuteronomy 19, in uh, Numbers 35, and in Joshua 20. And today we're going to mainly look at Joshua 20 and some in Numbers 35. Um, If we can all turn to Joshua 20, we're going to read 1 to 6, and then we'll read verse 9. Joshua 20, 1 to 6, and then 9. Tells us the Lord also spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills any person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they may show, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city, and he declares, or he states, or in a sense confesses, um, in the hearing of the elders, what happened. As one of them, um, they shall take him into the city and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not be they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally but did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the one who was the high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city, to his own house, to the city from which he fled. And we will drop over to number nine. These were cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who sojourned among them, that whoever killed any person accidentally might flee there and not die at the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. So this provision, again, was not only for Israelites, but it was for anybody who accidentally killed somebody. So when a man killed someone, a man or a woman, whether it was accidentally or premeditated, he could make great haste and he would flee to the nearest city of refuge. We know that if he's fleeing for his life, he did not stop to say goodbye to anybody. He did not stop to say goodbye to family or friends and tell them what was happening. He didn't stop to pack any clothes, pack a lunch, anything. The avenger of the blood would be after him in no time at all. His sole purpose was to get to the city of refuge, a place of safety. How thankful he was for the smooth, well-kept roads and the distinctive signpost pointing to the way to safety and to life. Should the avenger of blood overtake him, the avenger was at liberty to slay that person to take his life. Upon the fleer rested the responsibility of reaching the city of refuge in time. Remember, they were only 10 to 15 miles away. It was customary, as we know, in those days for judges or elders to sit at the entrance of the uh, gates of cities to uh, conduct business transactions. So let's look over at Joshua 20, verse um, 4 again, and we're just going to just go through all these a little bit here in A. So when the fleer gets to the entrance of the city of refuge, there is... Um, you know, uh, individual sitting there, one of the elders, 
And it says here, when he flees to one of those cities, he stands at the entrance of the gate and declares his case. So what he's doing there is he gets to the city and he's confessing to them. He's telling them what happened and they listen to his story. And after hearing his story, if they are satisfied that he at least deserves to have a hearing and a fair trial, they will let him in. Um, And that's part of that... um, Kalat of the gathering him in, and at that point when he's gathered in and taken in, he is under their protection from that point on. Um, next comes a trial on the judgment. Let's look over to uh, Numbers 35 and verse 24. Numbers 35:24 tells us. Then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. And the judgments are the scriptures that are up before that, that we didn't read in Numbers because it was kind of too long to read. That's why I chose to go with Joshua 20. But with those judgments there, they're talking about if someone slays somebody with a stone, whether it's premeditated or not, whether they use a wooden handle. So it lays out uh, different scenarios and in order for them to see what it fits and if this person would be guilty or not, whether the life would be spared or not spared. So when the accused would go to the city that it happened from, so... He goes to this other city for uh, of refuge, and it's time to have his hearing. So under escort, he is taken back to the city that he came from, and he's going to be heard in front of um, the people of his own city. And they then would consider the evidence uh, in the case. And at that time, also, witnesses would be um, gathered together. They would be called. They would give their testimony. In a trial for murder, the accused was not to be condemned on the testimony of one witness, were they? We know that even, there has to be a testimony of at least two or more people. So even if there's circumstantial evidence pointed toward this person being guilty of murder, if there wasn't more than one witness, he would not be condemned for murder. Now, if the person was guilty, he was turned over to the avenger, and he would be, he would be killed. Uh, let's look at Numbers 35 again, 31. This is kind of an important point here that shows the sacredness of life. Numbers 35, 31. It says, Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So in other words, what that's saying, if a rich man put somebody to death or somebody had a lot of money and he killed somebody intentionally with malice, he could not buy his freedom. Human life was sacred to God. God shows the dignity and the value that he placed upon man, and there was no amount of money that was going to buy the murderer off from not paying with his life for taking somebody's life premeditatively and intentionally. Uh, Let's look at Joshua 20, verse 6. Back over there, it tells us then if the person is not guilty, um, they had the trial, the witnesses came, he was deemed to be not guilty, he was sent back to the city of refuge. And and it says, and in 
And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, until the death of the one who is the high priest. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city in his own house. So we see that he's not guilty, but he has to go back to the city of refuge, and he has to stay there until the high priest priest dies. We might tend to ask ourselves, but I'm imprisoned. I'm not guilty. I didn't kill the person intentionally. It was an accident. Why can't I go back home to my home? What kind of a life is this that I have to stay in the city of refuge and live there until the high priest dies? I mean, he could live another 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Is this fair? Think about it. He was permitted to return to the city of refuge. This is the city in which who dwelt there? The Levites. The Levites were the ministers of God. They lived and carried out the services of God. The circumstances, these circumstances afforded the fleer the opportunity to study and to communicate with the Levites who were trained in all the things of God. Hence, they could look at the place of refuge actually becoming a source of a real blessing to the slayer as the priest and Levites taught him the ways of God. Another important thing to remember is the safety of the accused lay in his obeying the law of the city of refuge and abiding in it. In so doing, he was literally under Levitical or ecclesiastical protection and so subject to the high priest. And there, as we said, he remained until the high priest died. When the high priest died, it was necessary to have some point of some event of distinction that would mark that this person could be free now to go back to his own place to live, that it terminated his asylum, and that the avenger of blood might know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he had a legal right to return to his home and that the avenger of blood no longer had a legal right to take this man's life. The high priest died and this man returned home. He got to go home to his possessions to live a life without fear. But if he leaves before the high priest died and he goes outside of the city gates, he is abandoned in to the avenger of blood. Thus, an important lesson was being taught to God's people. They were taught to adhere to the methods which God appointed for their security. The city of refuge is a symbol of a refuge provided in Christ for us. It is a place of safety for us. Um, for the sake of time, we won't read all these scriptures, but I'll just tell you the scriptures, and if you want to write them down, you can. Um, in Psalms 91.2, we're told, the scripture tells us, I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him I will trust. In Psalm 46.1, we're told, God is our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in trouble. As we go to Jesus, we find safety. Who are we finding safety from? Who is trying to take our life? Who is the avenger of blood? We know that Satan is the avenger of blood, and he's the one that's pursuing us. In 1 Peter 5.8, we are told to be sober, to be vigilant, because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Revelation 12.12 tells us, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. 
Jesus is a city of refuge for us in our spiritual life. Satan is the one who is in hot pursuit. He is the avenger of the blood, if you will. And who is he pursuing? He's pursuing us, but not just God's people. He is out to destroy anybody he can get. Satan is in the business of destruction. He is out to destroy people. He is out to remove any opportunity of eternal life from anybody who might have an inkling to give their heart to the Lord. If the Lord's working upon somebody's heart and they're thinking about, you know, the Lord, thinking about maybe coming to church, Satan will do everything he can to prevent that person from doing it. He'll throw whatever in his path. So we need to know that he's out to destroy each and every one of us. Um, wanted to look a little bit in Patriarchs and Prophets. She's got a wonderful section in 517. Um, in 516, it starts on cities of refuge. She tells us down below here, uh, page 516, Patriarchs and Prophets. The cities of refuge appointed for God's ancient people were a symbol of the refuge provided in Christ. The same merciful Savior who appointed those temporal cities of refuge has by the shedding of his own blood provided for the transgressor of God's law a sure retreat into which they may flee for safety from the second death. So we flee to Christ for safety from the second death. No power can take us out of his hands. No power can take out of his hands the soul that goes to him for pardon. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us, that we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge, to lay hold upon the hope set before us. That's Romans 8, 134, and Hebrews 6, 18. And I'm going to look over at Acts 4, 12 real quick. And we're familiar with all of these, but we're just... Look at him. In Acts 4.12, we're told that there is, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven which by men may be saved. So Christ is the only one who can save, to save us. We know that Satan cannot take us out of Christ's hands, our place of safety, but we can choose to step outside of safety outside of salvation that is provided for us in Christ. Patriarchs and Prophets, again, on 517, it tells us, He who fled to the city of refuge could make no delay. Family and employment were left behind. There was no time to say farewell to loved ones. His life was at stake, and every other interest must be sacrificed to the one purpose, to reach the place of safety. Weariness was forgotten. Difficulties were unheeded. The fugitive dared not for a moment slacken his pace until he was safe within the walls of the city. And we look at that, we too must run to Jesus for refuge. And we shouldn't make any delay. We, can, we cannot, we should not put off our salvation to another day. We don't know how much time we have. We can go out of here today and we could die or we could die tomorrow. Today is the day of our salvation and we need to make sure that we are safely hid and abiding in Christ so that we're spared from the second death. Uh, continuing in 517, um, it says, The sinner is exposed to eternal death until he finds a hiding place in Christ. 
and as loitering and carelessness might rob the fugitive of his only chance for life, so delays and indifferences may prove the ruin of the soul. Satan, the great adversary, is on the track of every transgressor of God's holy law, and he who is not sensible of his danger and does not earnestly seek shelter in the eternal refuge will fall prey to the destroyer. Think about it. Do you consider yourself to be prey? Prey in the animal kingdom is food for somebody, another animal that's hungry and can more powerful and can overtake them. Prey in human beings like is a person that is helpless. They're unable to fight off an attacker. We are prey for Satan. We cannot fight off that attacker on our own. And we know that Satan is close behind us all the time. He is always out to get each and every one of us to trap us, to make us fall, to lose our hold on Jesus. But we need to every day, every moment of the day, just keep steadily running to Jesus and faithfully just fleeing to him for everything. Uh, We look at Joshua 24a. We see there that when he gets to that gate, he declares his case. Confession is made. The application is has a little bit of a difference now for us because in that time, a person who was guilty of premeditative murder was put to death. He was given over to the avenger. But God has um, made provision even for someone who premeditatively murders somebody. So the Bible tells us in... Um, in 1 John 1, 9, that, you know, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That confessing our sin is any and all sin. There's no qualification put on that. So if a person is guilty of murder, even if it's a premeditative murder, and he sincerely repents of his sin, he will be accepted by the Lord and he will have he can have eternal life so we read there when the center made his confession at the gate he was taken into the holy the city of refuge called the holy city taken into the city of refuge for protection when we come to christ and we make confession to him we are covered by christ's blood and we are protected from the second death as long as we continue to abide in him and that is the key thing we have to continue to abide in him in order to have that protection. And then when you go on to Joshua 26a, we're talked about the judgment. When the man who fled to the city because he unintentionally killed somebody, do you think that he was afraid of the judgment? He wasn't. He was actually looking forward to the judgment because he would give him a chance again to present his case. He knew that he did it unintentionally, and he knew that judgment would be made in his favor. His name would be cleared, and that one day he would be able to go home. Well, God has appointed a day of judgment for us. The wicked don't look forward to that judgment, but we as the righteous look forward to that judgment. And we know that when we have confessed our sins before the Lord, that we are forgiven our sins, that we are covered by Christ's blood, and that we, w- we will be with him, we have nothing to fear from the judgment day when it comes because we're going to be proven that our sins have been forgiven. We are safe to be trusted to live in the city of God 
forever. We are safe to eat of the tree of life. Our names have been cleared. All the names of the righteous people have been cleared. Let's look over to Numbers 35, um, 26 to 28. That was Numbers 35, verses 26 to 28. But if the manslayer at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of murder of his blood, because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. So we see here that freedom was on the inside only. To go outside, that individual was fair game for the avenger of blood. Do you think the slayer was joyful to remain in the city of refuge? Sure he was. He was happy to be there because his life was preserved and he was safe. He didn't complain about the restrictions because he was free and he was safe. When we look at ourselves, we should not complain when the Bible has us make modifications to our life. We are free and happy in Christ. Outside of Christ, we become fair game for Satan the Avenger. We get snared in his trappings of entertainment, of materialism, of overworking, of addictions, whether it's drugs, alcohol, smoking, TV, games, whatever it is. We lose our freedom when we step outside of abiding in Christ. We become slaves to Satan. Continuing on in Patriarchs and Prophets 517, she says, The sinner who at any time went outside the city of refuge was abandoned to the avenger of blood. Thus the people were taught to adhere to the methods which infinite wisdom appointed for their security. Even so, it was not enough that the sinner believe in Christ for the pardon of sin. He must, by faith and obedience, abide in him. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. That's Hebrews 10, 26, and 27. We know that we as Christians choose to live differently, to eat differently, to dress differently. When we have a relationship with Jesus, we don't complain about how God wants us to eat. We don't complain that he wants us to dress modestly and not dress like the world. We don't complain how he wants us to live because these changes are for our benefit. They're made in order for us to be joyful, to be healthy, and to be safe. We need to remember freedom is not on the outside in the world, but on the inside abiding in Christ. In 1 John 15, 4, 7, that's um, about the vine and the branches. We know that when a branch is broke off from the vine, it'll wither and die. There's no life left. If it's just hanging by a thread or so, it will also die. It may take a little longer, but it will die too. It has to be completely grafted in, completely connected to the vine. In 1 John 5.11, 
we're told there that God has given us eternal life, and eternal life is in his Son only. Now that we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the refuge, and we're abiding in him, we have a responsibility to the stranger that was in um, Joshua uh, 20, verse 9, and to the lost. In Deuteronomy 19.3, the scripture just, again, um, emphasizes preparing the roads. And the spiritual applications is these roads led to the city of refuge. Christ is our refuge. We're told in um, Acts of the Apostles on page 11 that the church is God's fortress, his city of refuge, and we are the church, aren't we? Again, in Joshua 29, the cities of refuge were for the strangers, too. And in Psalm 9-9, the Lord tells us that um, he will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble. In Isaiah 43-10, he says, we are his witnesses. So Christ is telling us that we are his church, we are his witnesses, and we have a responsibility to the oppressed people out in the world to bring them into the city of refuge, which is Christ, and to bring that message to him. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, he tells us, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. And the next phrase is really important. As though God were pleading through us. So we are his ambassadors as though God were pleading through us. As followers, we have to ask ourselves often whether or not we are directing people, the lost, toward Jesus by our witness or away from him by obstructing their view of him. In Signs of the Times, November 20th, 1899, Ellen White talks about the pathway, the road to the city of refuge, and how it was to be kept clean, we know, of all the rubbish. We know that in the paths were kept clean from stones and sticks and things like that so the fleer could travel and he would be uninhibited. She tells us that the city of refuge is to be kept free from the rubbish of selfishness and sin, that selfishness and sin are stumbling blocks, and we are to be removing all stumbling blocks. So we should not be a stumbling block to anyone. When we're trying to lead people on the road, the path to Christ, many there are many people who never read the Bible. There's some who may not ever read the Bible, but you can be sure they are watching the professed believers who claim to be Christians. And we need to ask ourselves, what impression am I making? Am I making an impression that draws people to Jesus, or am I making an impression that repulses them from the Lord? How many times, I know I've heard it, have you heard people say, well, if that's what a Christian's like, I don't want any part of it. Or, that person's a Christian. They're like everybody else I know. There's nothing different about them. You need to think about those things because people are looking and they are watching us. Christ is the place of refuge for the guilty sinner today. The road is always open with signposts along the way. The Bible is a signpost directing the sinner to Jesus. In this refuge, we must continue to abide until the indignation is passed. In Joshua 26, we read about the death of the high priest. Do you think the slayer looked forward to the, to the death of the high priest? I'm sure he did. 
He looked forward to that because on that day, he could return home to his loved ones, to his family, to his friends, where he would be truly a free man. He no longer needed to worry about the avenger of blood seeking his life because the high priest died. He was free to go home and to live his life. Jesus is our high priest. He's already died. He can't die again. But he is coming back, isn't he? And we look forward to his return. When we too shall be set free, we shall be free from the temptation of the avenger. We shall be free from the sinful world, free from pain, free from suffering, free from injustice, free from cruelty. We long to be told, too, that we can go home, home to the heavenly family that is joyfully awaiting our arrival, home to a place of peace, safety, and love, home to the waiting hours of our blessed creator and redeemer, Jesus Christ. If you have not made Jesus your city of refuge, do not delay. Do it now. We are told in Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Amen.